Let's turn in our Bibles this afternoon to 1 Timothy, the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3, and I will read verses 1 through 7 as our text. The title of the message, How to Call a Pastor. 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. <clears throat> This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. One of the most important decisions in the life of a church is the selecting of a new pastor. Everything in the life and continuance of a church depends to a very great extent on the man who is its pastor. Many churches have been hijacked and even destroyed by unscrupulous individuals posing as men of God who have somehow gotten themselves called as pastors of those churches. The purpose in preaching this message today is to try to help our church in the great task ahead of calling a new pastor. The thoughts in this message come from God's holy word and from many years of experience and observation in the matter of calling a pastor. In this sermon, I want to present some things that will help any Baptist church in the selection and calling of a new pastor. Here are eight things for a church to do in calling a new pastor. Now, I hope you'll take notes on this message if you can. There is a lot of material here, and we'll get out by 4 o'clock this afternoon if I can hurry and get through. Uh, but let me tell you how to take notes or how to listen to this that might be helpful. I have eight things a church should do. So I'm going to say number one, number two, number three. Under each one or under several of these, I'll say number two, and then I'll say A, and then I'll say B, and then I'll say C. And that way it will help you to uh, take notes and take something home uh, with you and hopefully remember some of these things. So with that in mind, eight things for a church to do in calling a pastor. Number one, elect a pulpit committee. 
elect a pulpit committee. A pulpit committee is a group of men elected by a church to find and bring before the church acceptable candidates for the office of pastor. Plainly stated, the purpose of a pulpit committee is to help the church find its next pastor. This committee works to carry out the wishes of the church. It is delegated by the church. It is serving the church. Number two, be sure to recognize what a biblical pastor is. Be sure to recognize what a biblical pastor is. The New Testament uses several different terms to describe the men whom God calls to pastor His churches. Each term describes some function or responsibility of the pastor. A. First of all, a pastor must be a learner or a disciple. In Matthew eleven twenty nine, the Lord Jesus says for us to, quote, learn of me, unquote. And this applies to all Christians, but especially to the pastor. The Lord calls men to preach who are willing to learn from the Lord and then can teach others what they have learned. A.T. Robertson said that <clears throat> the preacher who does not keep learning all the time will die of dry rot. And that is really the truth. You know, if a man quits studying, he'll start telling his stories. And he, he'll tell the same ones over and over after a while. And, and he'll die of dry rot. The end of a man's effective ministry is reached on the day that he stops learning. I have known older preachers who should have retired three or four years before they did because of their constant repetition in preaching. And that indicated that they had stopped learning. B. The New Testament calls a preacher a laborer in Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Let's, let's turn to that. Matthew 9, 37 and 38. A preacher is to be a laborer. The preacher is to labor in the Lord's harvest. He's not to be an idler. He must be a reaper who puts in the scythe. I guess people today still understand what that is. The scythe and he harvests the grain. Uh, Matthew 9, 37 and 38. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. Laborer. That's a worker. It's not somebody that goes off hunting all week and then comes and preaches on Sunday morning. Brother Wayne Camp once told me of overhearing a Southern Baptist preacher say that he had figured out a way to play golf every day of the week. A lazy pastor is a contradiction in terms. A biblical pastor is a laborer in God's harvest. A pastor, like any other worker, 
should keep regular hours in his study. I don't believe that a man can be an effective laborer if he doesn't. See, the New Testament refers to God's preacher as a herald. H-E-R-A-L-D. Now, we don't know what a herald is anymore, but the meaning of the word preach uh, in the New Testament literally means to declare like a herald. A herald is one who carries the official message of the king and heralds it or declares that message. Now you've seen or you've read about in school, I hope, if they still read about things like this, that in old England they had a herald that went down the streets at night and he'd say, 10 o'clock and all is well. He would herald that, raise his voice. 10 o'clock, and the king demands that all taxes are due by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. He heralds the king's message. He declares that message. When Paul told preacher Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2 to preach the word, he meant literally to declare God's word like a herald. Matthew 9.35 tells us that the Lord Jesus himself was a herald of of the gospel. Let's turn to that. Matthew 9:35. <clears throat> and Jesus went about all the cities and villages teaching in their synagogues and preaching. That word meant declaring like a herald the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. It's quite popular today for preachers to say to their audiences Today, I will share with you the gospel, or I will share God's message with you. Well, this reflects a fundamental misunderstanding of the biblical nature of preaching. Listen, Christ preachers don't share the gospel. They declare the gospel. They don't share God's will. They declare God's will. And you know, if you declare like a herald, you have to raise your voice. I tell you, I get tired of these little sissified lecturers that call themselves preachers sometimes. Christ preacher must declare the whole counsel of God. As Paul says in Acts 20, 27, that he did. He said, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Christ preacher must preach the part of God's word about sin. He must preach the part of God's word about God's sovereign grace. He must preach the part of God's word about repentance. He must preach the part of God's word about the coming judgment. He must preach the part about hell. He must preach the part about the return of Christ. He must preach the part about the separated life and holy living. He must preach the part about self-denial. He must preach the part about tithing. He must preach the whole counsel of God. A pastor must have recognizable preaching ability because preaching is his main responsibility. This is a fundamental requirement or a pastor. 
D. The New Testament refers to the pastor as a teacher. 1 Timothy 3.2 that we just read says the pastor must be apt to teach. And Ephesians 4.11 calls him a pastor teacher. Every man considering entering the ministry should ask himself, do I have enough knowledge of the Scripture and the doctrine of the Scripture to teach others? Do I really believe what I know and do I have the ability to teach these things? You know, a man has to be able to get it across to his hearers. E. Next, the pastor is one who is a prophet. One who speaks forth the message of God. Now this is just a little bit different uh, from a herald. A prophet is in touch with God. And he has the courage to declare God's will whether the people like it or not. God's pastor must have courage. He must have the backbone to stand for unpopular truth and to discipline members and to withstand a lot of criticism. And the biblical examples, classic examples, Elijah and John the Baptist. If a New Testament pastor is to be an evangelist or literally a gospelizer, one who knows the gospel and declares it to others. He needs to know how to tell people how to be saved. In 2 Timothy 4.5, Paul told preacher Timothy to quote, do the work of an evangelist, unquote. Too many grace preachers just sit down on their sovereignty and do not preach for souls to be saved. G, the New Testament refers to this officer of the church as a pastor. Ephesians 4.11 calls him a pastor. What does a pastor do? What does that mean? The word pastor means shepherd. What does a shepherd do? He leads the flock. He feeds the flock. And he guards the flock. That's what a pastor does. He leads the sheep. He feeds the sheep. And he guards the sheep. H. The New Testament calls the pastor an elder. Meaning an older man. Not necessarily in age, but in spiritual maturity. A pastor must have some measure of experience in spiritual things, in leadership, in preaching. Being young should not be a first or even an important consideration in choosing a pastor. Now, everybody we'll look at will be younger than I am. <laughs> so we can say they're younger. But... Uh, that shouldn't be the first consideration in seeking a pastor because many churches have been damaged or destroyed after seeking a man who is young as the first qualification for being the pastor. I, the New Testament calls the pastor the bishop of the church as in our text. Uh, let's look at another verse that calls him the same thing. Titus chapter 1 and verse 7. Titus chapter 1 
and verse 7. For a bishop must be blameless as the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre. Now the word bishop means overseer. The pastor is the overseer of the church and every part of it. You know, I remember one time I was in a meeting in a large Southern Baptist church and the preacher said something in, in this meeting about the nursery. And the nursery worker stood up and said, you just stay with preaching and we'll take care of the nursery. That's not your business. Listen, friends, the pastor is the overseer of everything in the church. He's the bishop. He's the overseer of the committees. He's the overseer of the deacons. He's the overseer of the women. He's the overseer of the kitchen. He's the overseer of the music. The overseer of the missionaries. He's the overseer of all things in the church. J. The pastor is also called in the New Testament a minister, meaning a servant. In Colossians 1.23, Paul called himself a minister of Christ. Pastors are ministers or servants of Christ, not servants of some denomination, not servants of some religious fellowship, but servants of Christ. Number three of eight things to do in calling a pastor, diligently seek to find out if the candidate possesses the biblical qualifications for pastor. The pastor of a Baptist church must meet the clearly revealed qualifications for that office as listed in the Word of God. Now turn back to our text in 1 Timothy 3, 1-7, and let's look at some of these biblical qualifications. A. The pastor must be blameless, as verse 2 tells us. It does not say he must be sinless. It says he must be blameless. And the word blameless is really interesting. It's a, a wrestling term. And it means that there's nothing that sticks out on the man that an enemy can get a hold of. Nothing a critic can take hold of. In other words, no scandal in his life, no divorce, no criminal record. There must, he must be blameless. B, the same verse says the pastor must be the husband of one wife. He must not be divorced. Of course, the same qualification of necessity applies to his wife. C, the pastor must be sober. Or literally, that word means self-disciplined in all of his appetites. I once knew a Baptist preacher who weighed over 350 pounds, and so did his wife. He was not sober. He was not disciplined in his appetites, and this was a great hindrance in his ministry. I, I heard little asides about him. Uh, how can he teach us the, the disciplined life when he can't discipline his weight? His eating. The meaning here also includes the thought of sober-minded. He's a serious person. D. 
The pastor must be apt to teach or able to teach or gifted in teaching. The pastor is the chief teacher in the church and so he has to be able to do so. Not everyone is. E, the pastor must not be given to wine. He must not be a drunkard. He must not be known for his uh, overindulgence. F, the pastor must not be a striker. That is, he must not be a violent man. He's got to have his temper under control. He must be a man of peace. I knew a preacher one time that somebody challenged him in a business meeting and it got so heated that finally the preacher said, well, if you don't like it, let's go outside and settle it out there. And that goes against this requirement of a pastor. No striker. G. Verse 3 here in 1 Timothy 3 says, The pastor must not be greedy of filthy lucre. That is, he must not be a lover of money. If God has called him, his great concern will not be his salary increases or his retirement investments. He's not greedy of filthy lucre. I know a man who went to a church, who was called to a church, and within a year he fell into a wrangle with the church about his salary. You know, that ought to be agreed on when, when the preacher starts. The church ought to be generous, but they ought to have an understanding about it. This man started wrangling with them within a year of when he went there. H, verse 6 says, The pastor must not be a novice or a new convert. He must have a good measure of spiritual knowledge, maturity, and experience. I, verse 4 says he must be one who rules well his own family. He must have his children under control. They must live what their father preaches. Titus 1, 6 says his children must be faithful children. A pastor's poor home conditions lead to compromises on many issues in his preaching and in his pastoring. It shuts his mouth many times about preaching on the family. Worldly children close the preacher's mouth on worldliness. I know a preacher whose wicked daughters have virtually ruined the man's ministry. One of them showed up at a conference. I was present. She showed up at the conference with her hair dyed green. The other daughter turned to drug use. Because of their wicked, worldly lives, this man's preaching on sin and family, if he does preach on that, rings hollow. It is of critical importance that a church look for these qualifications in any candidate for pastor of that church. Number four, look for some specific personal traits in a candidate. A, can he preach? That ought to be an obvious one. Can he preach? And in determining the answer to this question, consider three more questions. Is he well prepared when he preaches? Does he have a recognizable outline in his sermons? Does he preach Christ and the gospel? 
These are of great importance. Is his belief in grace obvious in his preaching? Does his preaching reveal that he is a strong, independent Baptist? Does it reveal that he is not leaning toward being a Reformed Baptist? Those Reformed guys have stolen, I don't know how many of our churches. Because the churches were not uh, on the ball in watching and asking about this. Does he believe in the local church only? B. He must have an overriding interest in the things of God. In other words, do preaching and pastoring have first place in his life? Is he a fanatic golfer? Is he a fanatic hunter? Is he a political junkie? Does his ministry have first place in his life? C. He must spend time in personal Bible reading and prayer, not just for sermon making. D. His life must be a model of his message. Turn to 1 Timothy 4.12. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. Paul says to the pastor here, Be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. The effectiveness of God's message bears a direct relationship to the life of the messenger. He must therefore practice what he preaches. That's an old proverb, but it still applies, especially to the preacher. E, his wife must fully support his work and life as a pastor. How many pastors' ministries have been ruined by wives who do not fully support him in his work. Make sure the candidate's wife is in full support of his ministry and in full support of his moving to our church. F. The pastor must be a man of integrity. A man of integrity pays his bills. Here's something really practical that I discovered a few years ago that has really turned out to be a good thing to do. To find out about a man's integrity, run a credit check on him. This is of major importance in considering any man as a potential pastor. Such a credit check often keeps a church from calling a shyster. I know of a pastor in Oklahoma City who was arrested for misuse of the church's credit card. He would go to Walmart and buy appliances with a credit card and then he would sell them to a fence. You know, I believe running a credit check on him probably would have found that out. Number five, the fifth thing to do in calling a pastor do two things before anything else. Do two things before anything else. A, the very first thing the pulpit committee must do and the church when it meets is to pray. Pray. Ask 
the great head of the church, to send you a faithful shepherd and then expect him to do so. Ask him to guide you in every thought and in every move that you make. The very first step is to seek the Lord's leadership through prayer. Every member of the pulpit committee and every member of the church should be in daily prayer because selecting a pastor is one of the most important things in the life of a church. B. The second item of business for a pulpit committee after prayer is to find people to fill the pulpit while the pulpit committee is searching. Now, there may be men in the church who can do this uh, or retired pastors when available, but this needs to be done so that the normal services can go on uninterrupted. Now, you know, sometimes the pulpit committee will be gone. And always we need somebody to fill the pulpit. Number six, the committee, the pulpit committee should establish the process it will follow in doing its work. Establish the process it will follow in doing its work. A, it should pray and seek out promising candidates for the office. Now, here is a wrong approach. Here are excerpts from a letter I received from a pulpit committee of a church in Oklahoma, and this was addressed to pastors and, and others all over the state. Quote, Dear co-workers in the Lord, Our church is without a pastor. We are an independent Baptist church, and we are seeking the Lord's will concerning this matter. If you know of a minister who is seeking a church to pastor, feel free to send his name and address to us, and we will be glad to contact him. We know this calls for a person of patience and perseverance and one who is flexible enough to work with all kinds of people. Enclosed is an information sheet about our church, and please feel free to pass it on to whomever you wish. Sincerely, the Pulpit Committee." Unquote. Now, this kind of approach is just a big waste of time because it will bring in unqualified candidates. Now here's something that is of critical importance to remember in seeking a pastor. A church must seek the man, not the man, the church. I want to run that by you again. A church must seek the man, not the man, the church. B. Elect a chairman of the committee. C. Determine things like which committee member will contact the candidates. D. The chairman should be designated to make all announcements to the church from the committee. Number seven. Ask the candidate some important questions. Here's a classic example of some wrong questions to ask a candidate. Chris Humphreys, uh, who is an acquaintance of mine in another state, sent me a letter about an experience he had with a pulpit committee. And here's part of the letter. Quote, I had the privilege, and that's in quotes, of being interrogated via conference call by a pulpit committee from a Southern Baptist church near Cleveland, Ohio, Sunday afternoon. One can tell a lot about a church from the kind of questions asked 
or not asked from a pulpit committee. Here is a sample of the questions this committee asked me. What is your leadership style? Who is your favorite singer? Really? What kind of music do you like? What age group do you relate to best in the church? Unquote. Then he went ahead to say, they did not ask me about the deity of Christ, the inerrancy of the scriptures, the nature of the atonement, the nature of the church, the total depravity of man, the attributes of God, eternal punishment, the doctrine of salvation, or even are you a saved person? There's nothing in 1 Timothy 3 or anywhere else in God's Word about the pastor's leadership style or being able to relate to one particular age group in the church above the rest. Certainly nothing about his musical preference. A pulpit committee can give a window into the soul of a church by the questions it asks. Ask the man to relate to you his salvation experience. That's always a blessing when somebody's truly saved to hear them tell it. Ask him about his call to the ministry. Ask him his beliefs about the nature of the church and eschatology and God's sovereign grace, and women preachers. Ask him which church ordained him. Ask him about all his previous churches and the dates he served in each. Ask him why he left each church. Ask about the doctrinal stance of the church he now serves. Is it an openly sovereign grace landmark Baptist church? Ask him if he plans to try to lead the church to, re- to become a Reformed Baptist church. Ask him why he's a Baptist. Ask him if he intends to remain a Baptist. Ask him if he believes in and practices biblical church discipline. Ask what he believes about abortion. Ask him what he believes about homosexuals and living together before marriage. Ask him if he smokes. Ask him if he uses only the King James Version of the Bible. That's so critical in this day. Number eight, finally, the committee should establish some guidelines to be followed in seeking God's man. Now these are very practical, I think, and very necessary. A, avoid considering relatives and friends of church members as candidates. There are almost always people in the church who have relatives who are preachers. This does not qualify a man to be pastor. I know of a church that had a deacon whose son-in-law was a pastor. And that deacon was greatly offended and he caused great and lasting disturbance in that church. The fact is the church finally dissolved. But he caused great and lasting disturbance because the church did not vote to call his son-in-law as the pastor. B, watch out for men who seek the pastorate in your church. You know, some of you men have already told me about a certain man that came to you and said that the Lord wants me to come and pastor your church. I'm available. I'm ready. Watch out. 
for men who seek the pastorate in your church. I know a preacher who called the pulpit committee of a church that was looking for a pastor and told them, listen, God is leading me to become the pastor of your church. Well, evidently, God didn't tell the pulpit committee about it because they voted to recommend somebody else to the church. Remember, again, that in calling a pastor, the church seeks the man, not the man, the church. C. The committee should keep some information that it learns about the candidates confidential. You know, we don't need to tell everything that we know about our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's certainly true of the pulpit committee as well. Uh, the, the committee doesn't need to tell everything they learn. They should not even tell their wives any more than they tell the church. The best answer for the question of why did you not recommend Joe Dope to the church if there is some disqualifying thing in his record is simply this. We don't believe the Lord is leading in that direction. And that's kind to everybody. D. Consider only one candidate at a time. Now, a lot of churches really get in a hassle over this. Consider only one candidate at a time. The committee... If they make up a list of, of potential candidates, they should agree on an order in which they will consider the candidates and then take them one at a time. Two or more candidates should never be brought before the church at one time. Calling a pastor should not be a horse race between several candidates. Each candidate will surely charm some and be objectionable to others. If one group's candidate is not selected, they may become the center of discontent in the church. This is the very easiest way to divide a church because people will tend to say, I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. Because of this, many churches have been literally wrecked in seeking a pastor. E, do not consider a second candidate until you have completely finished with the first. The committee should deal with a candidate and either recommend him to the church and have him come as a candidate or reject him and move on. F, observe the candidate in his own church. You know, I, we've gotten to the place where we're so lazy that some churches will, well, I'll just watch him on sermon audio or, or I'll watch him on streaming and that'll, that'll take care of that. That's not a, the right, right approach. Observe the candidate in his own church. Visit his church and listen to his preaching so his ordinary preaching can be heard. Call Saturday night before going on Sunday to make sure he's going to be in the pulpit that day, but don't tell him you're coming. G. If after careful investigation and hearing his preaching, a candidate seems uh, promising, invite him to preach in your church. The church needs to hear him for itself. H. Never decide on a candidate after hearing only one sermon. You know, we were talking about this earlier. 
every preacher has a sugar stick sermon that's better than all of his others. Every preacher does. And if he preaches just once, he will invariably preach his sugar stick. If he comes and preaches only one or two specially prepared sermons, the church won't get a fair idea of the sermons he will later deliver. Having preached several times during the week or on a weekend, I allow only church members to discuss, ask questions, and vote when it comes time to decide. This is a church matter. We, we, we go into executive session when we have meetings like this so that only church members can participate. Outsiders should have nothing to say in a church's calling of pastor. J, decide ahead of time the percentage of vote necessary to call a man and vote by secret ballot. In order to maintain unity in the church, a high percentage, like 95%, should vote in favor of a candidate. A vote of 85 to 15 or 70 30 reveals division already in that church. At the same time, it's not essential to have a unanimous vote. Now, you know, there's always one or two critical argumentative persons, and, and they, if they object, they shouldn't be allowed to block the will of the rest of the church. So, in conclusion, calling a pastor of a Baptist church is no simple and easy matter. Nor must doing so be taken lightly. Careful prayer for and dependence on the Holy Spirit's leading is essential in this most critical matter. Let us pray. Our Father.